You're listening to Law Talking, an independent podcast brought to you by Greenway Chambers. In this episode, Frank Hicks and Richard Cheney discuss the High Court decision of Stubbings and Jams 2 concerning unconscionable conduct, the full federal court decision in Minister for the Environment and Sharma about the common law duty of care on the minister in the context of climate change, and Palmer and Premier Aviation Maintenance, a case in which Clive Palmer was ordered to pay costs on an indemnity basis. In our second segment, Frank is joined by Ingmar Taylor and Lucy Saunders to discuss the recent High Court decisions concerning the question of independent contractor versus employee. See FMMEU and Personnel Contracting and ZG Operations v Jamsec. Hello and welcome to Greenway Chambers Law Talking Podcast. I'm joined by Richard Cheney. How are you, Richard? Good, thanks, Frank. And we're just looking at some of uh, the recent events in legal circles that have occurred. We're going to consider a High Court decision of Stubbings and Jams 2 Proprietary Limited. And we're also going to have a look at the full federal court decision in the Minister for the Environment and Sharma. And we're going to finish on another decision involving Clive Palmer, this one in proceedings against his plane mechanics, Premier Aviation Maintenance PDY Limited. But first, back to the Stubbings and Jams 2 Proprietary Limited decision. This was a case concerning unconscionable conduct in the context of asset-based lending or pure asset lending, which involves the provision of loans exclusively on the basis of the value of assets securing the loan without regard to the ability of the borrower to repay by instalments under the contract and in the knowledge that adequate security is available in the event of default. Now, there was submitted to the High Court the proposition that there was nothing inherently unconscionable about asset-based lending, and indeed that general proposition was conceded by the appellants. But Richard, what made this case one in which the High Court found uh, in overturning the Victorian Court of Appeal that there had been unconscionable conduct such that enforcement of the security instruments uh, was precluded? A couple of features of the facts as found below and and not challenged at any level in the appellate courts was cited by the five High Court judges who heard this appeal. It was found that the appellant lacked any commercial understanding and this was when coupled with his inability to repay the loans from his own income or from other assets meant that the default in repayment and the consequent loss by him of his equity in his properties that he'd put up by way of security for the borrowings were inevitable as a matter of objective fact. That is, the, the court found that it was inevitable that uh, having entered into this transaction, Mr Stubbings was going to lose the, the assets over which he'd provided security to the lenders. He was the guarantor of the loan taken out by the company of which he was the sole director, but the company had never traded uh, it had no assets, and so and and he, as the guarantor, had no income by which to to fund the obligations of his company under the loan agreement. Yes, and I think in the decision of their honours Chief Justice Kiefel, Keane, and Gleeson, paragraph five, it was held that the respondents, through their agent, sufficiently appreciated that reality, being the inability of the appellant to understand or indeed to service the loan that he was taking out 
that the exercise of their rights under the mortgages to turn the appellant's disadvantages to their own profit was unconscionable and that equitable intervention was justified in this case not merely to relieve the appellant from the consequences of his own foolishness, but to prevent his victimisation. Now, an interesting fact or issue in the case was that, notwithstanding his apparent inability to understand nor service the loan arrangements or the commercial documents that he was being asked to enter into, he did actually receive two certificates, which were obviously relied upon by the respondents, as to the fact that he had received independent advice, both of a financial kind and a legal kind, and the High Court had to deal with these certificates in the context of the finding of unconscionability. Indeed, these were certificates that the Victorian Court of Appeal found were sufficient to warrant finding that there was indeed no unconscionable conduct. Now, Richard, what did the High Court have to say about these certificates and their status or position in the context of these proceedings? They effectively found that the certificates were artificial in that they contained nothing to suggest that Mr Stubbings had actually turned his attention to the difference between the cost of his existing borrowings with the Commonwealth Bank and the proposed loans, or how indeed he would service the proposed loans. And the plurality, Kiefel, Keen and Gleeson, said that the, the absence of even the most general reference in the certificates as to the existence and terms of the company's business plan or as to the existence of a zoning problem of which the respondent's solicitor and agent was aware, the absence of even the most general reference in the certificates to how those problems might be resolved is eloquent of their artificiality, was the phrase that they used. Yes, I think that was at paragraph 48. They followed up in paragraph 49 in case there was any doubt that given the bland boilerplate language of the certificates and the statement therein of the purpose of the loan, which the respondent's agent must have been known to be inaccurate, it was open to draw the inference that the certificates were mere window dressing, and window dressing is in inverted commas, Mm. and that there was a similar inference to be drawn in respect of the commercially unnecessary interposition of the company as borrower, a step which was apparently calculated to prevent or impede scrutiny of the fairness of the transaction under the relevant code, which is applicable to personal borrowings in Victoria. Now, I think uh, Justice Stewart also had something to say about these certificates, didn't he, Richard? He he certainly did. He was scathing of them. His Honour delivered the lengthiest judgment of all of the decisions. And Uh, We might just interpose here that, of course, Justice Stewart came to the High Court from the Victorian Court of Appeal. Yes. (laughs) His Honour, Justice Stewart, identified a couple of what he described as critical defects in the certificate as to uh, the certificate from the accountant. One was that whilst on its face it confirmed that the appellant had understood the effect of the transactions, it said nothing at all about his capacity to service the loans and it and it did not address the suspicion that was held by Mr Jurazowski, the respondent's solicitor and agent, and it did nothing to reverse his conclusion that the transaction was risky and dangerous for the appellant. The certificate effectively avoided these issues. And I suppose one lesson to be taken from the judgments for solicitors who are involved in proffering these certificates is to have close regard to whether the certificate is in reality reflecting the true position or is merely a matter of going through the motions. Yes, window dressing, as was stated in the decision of the plurality, 
or indeed kabuki theatre <laughs> in terms of simply being a, a ticker box type exercise designed to protect the respondent. Obviously, these certificates are intended to have force and effect, and it is important that those that are providing them do treat them seriously and not simply as sort of exercise of, as I say, ticker box or, or window dressing. Mm. Or one of the other important decisions that was handed down recently was Minister for the Environment and Sharma. This was a decision of the full federal court dealing with the question of a duty of care being imposed on the federal minister with respect to the exercise of power under sections 130 and 133 of the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act 1999. As you will doubtless recall, it was held that the minister did owe a duty of care in proceedings brought by various children who were somewhat concerned as to their futures, having regard to the risks and ravages said to arise from climate change. Uh, And the full federal court gave consideration to this conclusion and found against that and overturned the decision at first instance. Richard, did you ever look at this decision and what did you make of it in general terms? Uh, I did, Frank. And I suppose the starting point is to recognise the duty as it was found by the primary judge. It was expressed to be a duty to require the minister to take reasonable care to avoid causing personal injury or death to all people in Australia under 18 years of age at the time of the commencement of the proceedings arising from the emissions of carbon dioxide into the Earth's atmosphere from the combustion of the coal to be mined in the extension of the mine. And The primary judge also found that human safety was an implied mandatory consideration in the making of the decision. One of the interesting features of the appeal is that the substantial body of findings of fact that the primary judge made were not challenged. Um, That is, the, the findings as to climate change and the dangers to the world and humanity, including to Australians in the future from climate change, were unchallenged on appeal, and indeed at trial none of that evidence was disputed. There was no cross-examination of any of the witnesses that were brought forward by the applicants, and there was no contrary or qualifying evidence led by the Minister in in response. And so the, the analysis by the Court of Appeal proceeded from the premise that all of the findings the primary judge made were open to be made on the uncontested evidence that was before his honour. I think the Minister did seek to make some, well, not seek, but did make some submissions that uh, certain of the primary judge's findings were incorrect and reached beyond the evidence. But the court was unanimously of the view that those complaints were unfounded and that all of the findings were open to be made on the evidence. So looking, I think, principally at the Chief Justice's reasons, he held that uh, the duty should not be imposed for a number of reasons. Firstly, the content and scope of the duty would call forth at the point of assessment of breach the need to reevaluate, change or maintain high public policy, the assessment of which was unsuited to a decision by the judicial branch in private litigation. Secondly, the imposition of the duty would be incoherent and inconsistent with the decision-making in question under the Act. And thirdly, taken in conjunction with the above matters, there was a question as to whether or not such a common law duty could arise. Now, Richard, you're familiar with the Chief Justice's reasoning in earlier decisions with respect to common law duties. Can you just perhaps walk us through what he was referring to there? His Honour, the Chief Justice, is the author of the off-cited salient features decision, Caltex and Stavar, S-T-A-V-A-R, 2009 decision that's reported at uh, volume 79 of the New South Wales Law Reports at page 258. 
in, and in that decision delivered over a decade ago, his honour identified a non-exhaustive list of what he's described as the salient features that will point to the existence of a duty of care, the foreseeability of harm being one, the nature of the harm alleged and the degree and nature of control that was able to be exercised by the defendant to avoid the harm were, were but three of a long list of salient features, some of which were given some airtime in this decision, namely the lack of control over the harm as to, to be distinguished from the control over the tiny contribution to the overall risk of damage from climate change that this mine extension would make, the absence of special vulnerability in the legal sense and I think perhaps most pivotally, or importantly, the indeterminacy of liability and the lack of proportionality between what is on a described as the tiny increase in risk and lack of control and liability for all damage by heat waves, bushfires and rising sea levels ongoing into the future. Uh, His Honour regarded those as pointing against the existence of a duty in this well, case. Well, certainly the indeterminacy of liability was also a point that was picked up by Justice Beach, yes. uh, who was also concerned that there was not sufficient closeness and directness between the Minister's exercise of statutory power and the likely risk of harm that was also picked up by Justice Wheelerhan. But it's certainly a decision worth reading, and it may be important to those who need to wrestle with the question of the imposition of a common law duty, whether for or against, and going back to the earlier decision in Stavar that, as Richard says, is oft-cited. Now, there's just a couple more matters that we wanted to wind up with. Firstly, the decision of Palmer and Premier Aviation Maintenance PDY Limited, another excursion by Clive Palmer in litigation circles, this one resulting in an indemnity costs order made against him. The relevant citation is square brackets 2022 and square brackets FCA 185, and we'll provide all the um, medium mutual citations to the earlier decisions we've discussed in the show notes. But Richard, Clive Palmer loses again. <laughs> a somewhat humiliating back down. Uh, it appears that, or well, at least more than appears, Mr. Palmer's case against the respondent aviation repair company, maintenance company, was that Mr. Fillingary uh, had entered into contracts with the respondent company to repair Mr Palmer's plane but had done so outside the scope of his authority as agent and Palmer contended that in taking delivery of the aircraft and dismantling dismantling it in the repair process the respondent had committed trespass, conversion, detinue and behaved unconscionably and he sought damages in the amount that was necessary to rebuild the plane which he said was about $900,000, or alternatively the value of the plane if it wasn't returned, some $2 million. And the backdown that occurred, the, the decision to discontinue the proceedings, which gave rise to the costs argument, was described by Mr Palmer's solicitor in a letter to the respondent as having been brought about by the very recent discovery on the part of the solicitor of a lease between Mr Palmer, his client, and the company mineralogy who operated the plane and who employed Mr Fillingary, the chief pilot, to enter into contracts on behalf of mineralogy for inspections and maintenance. So the, so effectively, the solicitor informed the respondent's solicitor by letter that he had recently, in a discovery process in related proceedings, learned of the existence of this lease by which Mr Palmer had leased possession of the plane to 
mineralogy and it was mineralogy who had commissioned the repair work. Yes, and uh, in all of those circumstances, the defence that had been raised by mineralogy and Mr Palmer could not be sustained and they had to seek to remove themselves. And uh, His Honour Justice Yates held that in order to do so, the price of doing so in discontinuing was an indemnity cost order having regard to the conduct and the manner in which the defence had been pleaded. So it's uh, it was an interesting decision and chalk another one up to Clive Palmer coming second in litigation. Now, I just wanted to finish then with some congratulations from not just Richard and I, but Greenway Chambers generally to the appointment of Anna Mitchell-Moore to the Supreme Court as a judge of the court. Congratulations, Anna. We're sure that you will do exceedingly well in this role. And also the appointment of David Hammerschlag as the uh, Chief Justice in Equity. We certainly look forward to appearing before you in that capacity, Your Honour, and we're, again, sure that you will do a fantastic job. Richard, I'm sure you'll join with me in offering congratulations to each of those. I certainly do. Thank you. Well, that's about it for the opening segment. Stay tuned for the next segment where I'm joined by Lucy Saunders and Ingmar Taylor to look at some recent High Court decisions concerning the vexed issue of contractor versus employee. But thanks very much for that survey of recent cases and appointments, Richard, and enjoy the rest of the day and the podcast. Thanks, Frank, and go the Dragons. <laughs> well, I can't join you in that, but uh, go the Waratahs for my part, at least, anyway. All right, thanks very much. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I'm joined by Ingmar Taylor of Senior Counsel and Lucy Saunders to discuss two recent High Court decisions with respect to issues of employment law and independent contractors. Ingmar, how are you? Yeah, good. Very good. Excellent. And Lucy, yourself? Uh, very well. Excellent. Now, the two cases are Construction, Forestry, Maritime, Mining and Energy Union and Personnel Contracting, uh, Medium Neutral Citation 2022 HCA1, the first cab off the rank for the year. And the second is ZG Operations Australia, PDY Limited and JAMSEC, Medium Neutral Citation 2022 HCA2, the second cab off the rank for the year. Now, starting with the union and personnel contracting decision, Ingmar, can you tell us a little bit about the facts of the case? Sure. Look, both of these cases look at and now authoritatively determine a long-standing issue in law as to whether a worker engaged is an employee or a contractor. In this particular case, we had a 22-year-old British backpacker, Mr McCourt, who um, is looking for work. He's unskilled. He does have his own hard hat and his own steel cap boots and his own high-vis clothing. And he is approached by or approaches a company called, legal name I think was Personnel Contracting, that's what you find in the title of the case, but they find him work on a building site. And he works on this building site for another company, Hanson, but he enters into a contract and that contract says that he is a contractor. He's not an employee. The case was looking at whether in fact he was an employee, because if he was, he was entitled to all the entitlements of, that come with employment, annual leave, award entitlements and the like. I see. And the full federal court considered whether or not that circumstance created a contract of employment or a contract for services, that is to say independent contractor. 
And how did the full federal court look at things? Well, so at first instance, he was found to be a contractor using what was referred to as a multifactorial test, which examined a range of different circumstances. Ultimately, at first instance, the judge found the label that the parties had put on it, that is the contract, which had said on at least three occasions, he was definitely not an employee, he really, really was a contractor, was decisive. The full federal court frankly thought that that was probably wrong, but they felt themselves bound by a full court WA Supreme Court decision, which had said that this type of arrangement was not an employment arrangement. And they felt that it was probably wrong to overturn something that had been in place for at least 16 years and that parties had relied upon, because that decision of the full Supreme Court, they didn't think was obviously wrong. What did the High Court think of the approach of the full federal court in the union and personnel contracting? What do they think of its, its rationale and reasoning? Well, the full court, as the primary judge had done, applied what was referred to as a multifactorial test, which examined not just the terms of the contract, but how the work had in fact played out over time. And whilst uh, two of the High Court judges, Justices Gagler and Gleeson, thought that a long-standing approach was correct. The majority of the judges thought, no, you must look at the terms of the contract at the time it was entered into and only look at those terms to decide whether someone was an employee or a contractor. Now, you might think then, given what I said, that this contract said on at least three occasions he was a contractor, that therefore the conclusion would be he was a contractor. No, they found he was an employee because... They said label what labels the parties put on it is of no great assistance to a court. It's just the opinion of the parties on a legal question. What they did was look at the actual terms of the contract and found that Construct set the rate of pay, determined where he would work and when he would work, and paid him, and he was under an obligation to do work for them at the building site when asked, And that was sufficient for them to find that that was the hallmarks of an employment relationship, and they so found. Lucy, if I could bring you in on this point, this approach of the High Court to focus on the contract rather than subsequent conduct, to those of us who practice generally in commercial areas, seems to be a fairly orthodox approach in the sense that subsequent conduct can never be relied upon to construe terms. It can obviously be relied upon in other circumstances and indeed to determine whether or not a contract has been formed at all. Does this represent some new approach that the High Court is adopting, or is it simply a continuation of what's been coming from previous decisions? It's certainly a change, but possibly not as dramatic a change as uh, it might have been reported. What it is a departure from is a pure reliance on what's called a multifactorial test, where the actual manner in which a contract for work of some kind, it's construed based on the way it's performed, so subsequent conduct, which, as you say, when you put it as bluntly like that, is a fairly novel approach to interpreting contract. The thing is that test arises from a very well-known case, Hollis and Vabu, where you had a situation where the contract wasn't, as here, complete. It was partly in writing, partly oral, and so that reference to the reality was useful there to determine what terms existed at all, which is one of the other uses it can be put to. At least the plurality of the High Court have been very clear that that approach is no longer available 
some disagreement in some of the minority judgments. But it's not a complete departure from the reality of the situation, which you see here from just simply ignoring the several times that personal contracting was very clear to say, no employment relationship, you can't have one, you're not an employee. Possibly suspicious that that was in there three or four times to begin with. <laughs> I just want to be clear. It's true that courts now said, look, you, as you might say, a sort of might thought to be an orthodox approach, you look at the actual terms of the contract that was time it was entered into, but they were very careful to say more than once, unless, of course, you are pleading that it was a sham or that there was a subsequent variation, including by conduct, or there was a stopple or waiver. And so whilst a lot of commentators are saying this is a black letter approach, which will mean that the courts will be uninterested in anything that happens after the contract's entered into, my takeaway is, yes, that's true, unless you plead that subsequent conduct is relevant to any of those matters I've just identified. So um, what we might just find are slightly longer pleadings, but much of the same type of case being run just with a slightly different focus. Yeah, some alternative arguments, because that's the source of the major concern with what's being viewed as a stricter approach is that it, it isn't uncommon to have written contracts, which in an employment or work context are almost always contracts of adhesion that are very carefully drafted by a set of lawyers a thousand miles away and have no connection to the way work is performed or the actual nature of the role. That's not so much that the contract needs to be interpreted in a completely different way, but it just may have been varied by conduct or discharged. Yes. So obviously the manner in which the issue is put before the tribunal or the court is going to be important if it is simply suggested as a matter of construction that the terms are of a certain kind then that obviously leads to the assessment and reasoning that the High Court has addressed. But if you expand the contentions, as you're saying, Ma, to include often thought of equitable type issues of waiver, estoppel, variation, although variation is obviously common law, then obviously subsequent conduct is quite material to those things. Indeed. And and then query to what extent uh, the, the plurality seemed to identify it was available. One can also look at subsequent conduct to look backwards and 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 contend that the contract, to the extent to which it was drafted in a manner that might have been intended to characterise it as an independent contractor contract, was in fact a sham. This notion of whether it was a sham or not, I think is going to be something which is going to excite litigation now following this decision, because traditional concepts of sham really required proof that both parties at the time they entered into the contract intended to enter into a contract which was not to have the effect that it would appear on its face. But the court here seems on more than one occasion to have alluded to the potential for subsequent conduct to be relevant to the question of the characterization of the contract being one which might have been drafted to appear as an independent contractor contract when looked at merely on the face of the contract. But if you actually look at the subsequent conduct, that was a sham. Now, Lucy, going back to a point that you raised about the fact that these employment arrangements or contracting arrangements are often classically defined as contracts of adhesion, did the full court and the high court have anything to say about the uh, disparity in bargaining power between the parties involved to these contracts as to how one approaches them? Not in any particular detail. It wasn't determinative. It's one of the interesting policy questions about this area in that increasingly in 
commercial or consumer dealings, there's a wide range of statutory remedies available, which of course consider these broad concepts of unconscionability, uh, displacement of bargaining power, which are just not really available or relevant in employment law. That said, if these decisions do mean that more people are independent contractors than employees than previously thought, that also does mean that more people have access to the ACL remedies in that respect. And so there may be some balancing there. Part of the reason that that wasn't hugely significant here, where you otherwise might think it would, talking about a 21-year-old unskilled labourer negotiating with, frankly, anyone, um, is because the real significance of personnel contracting is in respect of what have been called ODCO schemes. The West Australian Supreme Court decision that Ingmar was talking about earlier itself follows a 1991 decision building Labourers Federation and ODCO, uh, which concerns the same kind of tripartite arrangement where somehow the worker ends up being not employed by anyone. Uh, You have a worker who enters into a contractual arrangement with someone who will provide administrative services, who will facilitate finding work for them, and they agree to accept or reject the work depending on the terms of the contract. But there is no direct contractual relationship with the person for whom the work is supplied, and nor is it a contract to perform work for the middleman. Odco schemes obviously arise in the context of no ticket, no start in the construction industry, and that's informed the 1991 decision for a range of different reasons. Uh, what personnel contracting makes clear is that that is no longer good law. That- Which is something I've been waiting my entire professional <laughs> life to, to, to have confirmed. Um, <laughs> Um, Vindication. I was quite pleased about that. Although I, I noticed, you, what, we have to be a little careful. We, we're doing our best to to bring together what appears to be the majority view, but one shouldn't forget that there are three judges: Justices Keefel, Keane, and Edelman, who have the plurality decision. Justices Gordon and with Stewart agreeing have a further decision, which is much to the same effect, but not entirely. And In this particular area, I noticed Justice Gordon was not as confident that ODCO would necessarily always be wrong in every scenario. So I was slightly less enthusiastic about that. Well, indeed, Justice Stewart thought it was still right. (laughs) Correct. So this is my concern. So um, now we should move on to the other decisions, should we I was just going to ask if we we could now talk about ZG Operations and JAMSEC, perhaps starting with the facts. What happened there, Lucy? Lucy, take us away. Although dealing with the independent contractor question, it does involve very different facts. The two respondents here were long-term truck drivers for ZG operations. They'd started in the distant past, the 1970s, as employees, reached a point in 1986, which you'd recognise at around the time that Odco schemes were starting to become popular, where the company determined that it would not keep them on as employees. If they wanted to continue working, they would need to do so as independent contractors. Yeah, look, can I just jump in? So there's been a number of cases involving cleaners as well where, I mean, Lucy's being accurate, but maybe not as critical of the company as she could have been. The drivers went to the company and said, we'd like a pay rise. And the company's response was, no, you can't have a pay rise, but in good news, you can be contractors. If you don't want to be contractors, you probably won't continue to work for us anymore. So that was the choice they were given at that point. Um, They decided to become contractors. Doesn't that uh, go to the bargaining power issue? It does. And and so commentators like Professor Andrew Stewart have identified that one of the reasons why people have looked at the totality of the arrangement is because of a view that 
only by looking at the totality of the rainship can you properly understand that workers don't necessarily have a capacity to bargain the terms of the contract. And so one should actually look at the way it worked out in practice. The High Court has clearly said, with great respect, bargaining power is all very well, but it's more important to have certainty. And certainty is created by focusing on the terms of the contract. And after all, there are many contracts out there where standard terms are provided and you can take it or leave it. Yes, that's quite right. That's why I said earlier that we are almost inevitably talking about contracts of adhesion. If we wanted some more prejudicial facts, Mr Jamisk and Mr Whitby left high school at 14 and 15 years of age, neither have formal qualifications, both have only ever worked in jobs requiring manual labour. There is almost inevitably an imbalance in bargaining power. But for better or worse, in 1986, so far too long ago for it to be actionable now, they did become contractors. They entered into a relatively shambolic written contracts in this case there's they've sort of everyone's tried their best but they vary from year to year well and they bit. couldn't even find the first two i don't think well it's a minor matter of detail isn't it in a contracting case um but they did make a significant capital investment in their trucks and they did set up partnerships by which the income they generated a box rate by how much it was transported at a particular time was paid to the partnership and for tax purposes distributed to them and their wives and so you do have some of the what you look at it, what does actually look more consistent with a classical independent contracting arrangement. Um, they were dependent in the sense that ZG was their only or overwhelming client. They had a lot of control about how they performed their work, which is not unusual with truck drivers because they are just driving the truck by themselves. Can I, can I just ask a, a question of, of the facts there? The trucks that they'd bought and that they were using for their business, did they actually have ZG operations written on the side of them? That, oh, yeah. that, that would somehow and suggest against the fact that they could perhaps take work from other... Oh, no, they couldn't, they couldn't work for others. For others. No, 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 they, no, they, no, they no, couldn't work for this others. company and they were wearing this company's logos. And by the by, the contracts, the trucks they bought, upon which the court ultimately placed significant reliance, even the minority who came to the same conclusion in minority in approach but not in conclusion, that's Justice Gagel and Gleeson, the trucks were bought from the company. So at the point where they became well, from time to, contractors... From time to time... Oh, they no. wouldn't be using the same trucks, I hope. True. <laughs> in 2010, okay. as they were in fairness to you, Frank, it is true <laughs> that the original trucks were bought from the company. So they continued originally to drive the same truck in the same uniform with the same logos, but now called contractors. The difference being that they got paid a minimum daily rate. And from that, they had to fund the financial costs of the purchase of the truck from the company. that And the running costs. And the running costs. Um, But yes, over time, they had to replace those trucks. And for whatever reason, one presumes they got some advice on this. Rather than enter into the contract in their own name, they entered into a partnership and their wife was the partner. But the contracts at various points talked about them as he or him, which was rather suggestive that the contract was placing personal obligations on them and certainly did place personal obligations on them to drive the truck uh, as effectively when asked to deliver things hang here on, and there. Hang on, the finding was that they were actually able to have other people do the driving. As well. Yeah, that, that was just, and that actually happened, which is more important because quite often there's a line saying, we can have whoever you like performing this work and it's just not possible as a matter of reality. It appears to have happened, I accept, twice in the 27-year engagement, but it is there. And, of course, the partnership aspect probably was their idea rather than the company, but that's what it looked like. Well, it sounds like an interesting set of facts because on the one hand, as you say, it seems that they'd set themselves up in a in a manner following the demands of the company to operate as independent contractors. 
albeit having come from a position of employment. And those arrangements had been in place for a very long time. I would have thought a, a long, much longer time than involving a backpacker in the CFMMEU decision. So again, we, we find the High Court taking the same approach, I, I take it, that you examine if they can find a contract, I suppose, which is the first. Yeah, problem. well, they did. They did. They did have later versions of the contract. Um, uh, but did it? And it did evolve over time. The the, the terms it, of and the, the contract the evolved over time. Interestingly, in some ways, it evolved in ways that again were somewhat suggestive employment. So originally, they were told that they would be employed on the basis of a minimum daily rate and would be paid per carton delivered. Uh, but after a while, the drivers said we'd prefer to be paid on an hourly basis. And we'd like four weeks annual leave, albeit unpaid. And the hourly basis has to include various loadings of the sort that we're only normally paid to employees. So it's clear that the way in which they were being remunerated became more akin to employment. But fundamentally, and this is why it didn't matter whether you, even on the minority view that the uh, CFMEU case of Gagler and Gleeson they came to the same conclusion as those who were junking the multifactorial approach, the, the majority. They just said that these people entered into partnerships where they supplied their own vehicle over a lengthy period of time and they entered into a whole series of financial arrangements to, fu- to, to fund those trucks and the like. It, it, it had, even on the multifactorial approach, it had all the hallmarks of a contractual relationship. And they went. they also added that the full federal court had tried to find or maybe had even found that there was aspects of the contract which were contractor arrangement and aspects which were employment. And they said, with great respect, this is a true dichotomy. You have to be one or the other. You can't be both at the same time. It's binary. It is indeed. Right. The, um, and yes, it has to be said that for those of us who might prefer to keep the multifactorial test alive, one way to do that is to talk up certain facts in Jamesk to distinguish it from other situations. So who knows? Um, the other binary that the the plurality, I should just say Justices Kiefel, Keane and Edelman rather than continuing to try and pronounce that, um, identified was the idea of working in someone's business or operating a business of your own, which is a concept that's been evolving as a different way to apply, really, the multifactorial test. That seems to have survived as a useful analysis, even with a stronger focus on written contract. Yes, and that's right. They they still say, look, let's have a look at whether you are running your own business or you're in the employer's business. Although the various judges also said that that isn't ultimately going to be necessarily decisive, but it will certainly be something, and, and this whole line of authority now is going to be something that's now going to be examined in light of these gig economy cases that we're seeing coming through the system. How does this new approach apply in an Uber or Deliveroo situation. Okay, you go to the terms of the contract. Those contracts have been very, very carefully drafted over a lengthy period of time and and amended. But the mere fact that they say that you're not an employee, we're clear that that isn't decisive. But looking at the actual rights and liabilities and trying to work out how this applies in practice, I just, my take out is that as the CFMEU case demonstrates, one shouldn't read into these decisions that simply because the court is saying, look at the terms of the contract, that it necessarily follows that contracts which have been drafted in order to try and portray a situation of contract relationship rather than employment are necessarily going to come to that conclusion. 
the fact that the plurality made clear that a label is something of which they place little, in fact, no weight at all, means that this purely legal question is one that lawyers are going to continue to have the job of helping their clients understand what is the true answer. The parties are not able to determine this for themselves. All they can do is draft a contract and hope that its rights and liabilities will be read in a way that has the conclusion which the drafter intended. Well, I suppose as lawyers, that's always our hope. Um, that seems like a pretty good place to wrap it up, unless there's anything else we can take out from these decisions. Uh, Lucy, Ingmar? Lucy has something. Oh, no, I already said it. Uh, my, oh, yes, my, we, we my... promised a hot take and no, it's in there already. Yes, uh, so a prize <laughs> to whoever can identify it. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Uh, well, look, thank you very much, Ingmar and Lucy, for that most informative assessment of these recent decisions. and. It looks like there'll be more work and many immediate applications for amendment about to be brought forward um, in respect of some of these cases. There's a lot more work. I've got a, a case at the moment which uh, involves the tax office and the, one of the first things that can happen to do is the tax office is going to have to go back to its tax ruling in which it determines all these matters and rewrite it. <laughs> Excellent. More work. That's what we all look forward to. Well, thank you very much again for joining us for this discussion. Thank you for listening to Law Talking. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and are not representative of Greenway Chambers. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts, and if you enjoyed this episode, why not leave us a review? You can also listen to Law Talking on Spotify, your favourite podcast app, or our website. Be sure to visit greenway.com.au to access the show notes and for more information on today's speakers.